everyone, and welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode is the second round of one of mine and Emily's favorite styles of episode, I'm pretty sure. Are, are you? Am I right with that, Em? Oh, this is definitely one of my favorites, yes. <laughs> so this is Hunt for Hypotheses 2.0, aka our science episode on National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. You may remember that we did this for the first National Treasure movie way back in season one of our show. And um, I don't really know why it took us so long to do the second one. I have a theory. Yeah. Do you care to share? <laughs> it's because finding science in National Treasure 2 was hard. Very well put, M. It was very hard. Um, maybe that should be a caveat we start with right here, right now. I mean, think back to National Treasure number one. We had invisible ink. We had fluorescent dyes we had lasers to heat up thermometers we had so much science stuff going on and um that was really fun for us as scientists to dig into national treasure 2 uh not so much not so much at all there really weren't many science tricks um during the hunt so suffice it to say that we had some fun with the ones we picked out for this film right em Oh yeah, I think that, I hope that you will enjoy what we have chosen to talk about scientifically and that you will humor us for those that you enjoy less than others. To be honest with you, I was a little worried going into this, but the more I was digging into the research, the more I was like, okay, I'm actually learning a thing or two here. Oh, same. Yeah, so hopefully that'll come across to all of you as well. Um, But before we dive in, Emily, we've got to start off with our screams from Parkington Lane, our customary acknowledgement that national treasure has seeped into every nook and cranny of our personal and daily lives. Naturally, we do. And Aubrey, let me tell you that I have less of a scream and more of a quest for help, if you may. Ah, pray tell. So I am currently preparing in advance some lectures for the course that I'm going to be teaching over at Haverford this semester. And I am trying to incorporate superheroes and other kind of pop culture things into the lectures. And I would absolutely love to somehow incorporate national treasure into one of my lectures about neuroscience. So... If anyone has any ideas, I frankly am having a lot of trouble thinking of a way to do so. (laughs) I know that surprises no one. But (laughs) if anybody has any ideas, please feel free to let us know. Uh, You know what? I feel like I'm going to take this as a personal challenge. Oh, boy. (laughs) I mean... This is where me having absolutely zero background in neuroscience is not going to be helpful whatsoever because I'm pretty sure all the things that have immediately flooded to my mind are like behavioral science, which is not the same. Um, Why couldn't you be teaching a course on behavioral science? There's some in there. I feel like, okay, well, I feel like our podcast could be used as a teaching aid sometimes. Actually, you should be teaching like CIE or ethics. Anyway, I digress. Aubrey, what's your scream? Okay, well, my scream actually, ironically, fits with today's theme really well. So at the time of recording this episode, it is freshly new year, like happy 2022, y'all. I was recently back at home with my family for the holidays, and my dad is an avid collector of antique things. Literally, you name an antique thing, he probably has it or wants it. Um, so one of these things that he collects is antique coins. And he was showing me his latest purchases for his coin collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happened to see this, this coin that quite frankly, it looks like a Spanish galleon from the bottom of the ocean. Like it's this, it's this gold thing, 
gold colored thing um that's been eroded a little bit we'll get into why that probably means it's not gold later in the episode <laughs> actually but it's this gold looking coin it's very heavy and you can just make out that there's like a a bust or like a profile on it but it's like kind of eroding away and the first thing i thought i literally I turn away from his shiny new coins or like the shiny well-preserved coins and I beeline to this thing and I'm like, I'm taking this to post on the National Treasure Hunt accounts because I've decided this is a treasure. <laughs> it looks like it was on a sunken <laughs> ship and National Treasure 3 needs a plot last time I checked. <laughs> well, we already did a ship buried in the Arctic tundra. But not in the ocean this is true <laughs> so naturally i took it and i do have pictures that i will be sharing on our social medias this week that is my scream wow Aubrey, thank you for that <laughs> and if you want to check us out on social media you can find us on twitter and instagram at nt hunt podcast we are also available to listen to on apple podcasts spotify soundcloud and good pods Go ahead and like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms. Talk to us. Let us know what you think, especially after this episode. And if you're feeling still in the holiday spirit after the holiday season has, let's put it lightly, long since passed, <laughs> you can go ahead and check out our merch store, which is available in the link tree on our bio. And go ahead and purchase uh, some National Treasure Hunt gear that you can use to rep uh, your favorite podcast. Heck yes. And hey, speaking of ratings and reviews, I hear that Spotify now allows you to like rate podcasts. So we'd really appreciate some five-star reviews on Spotify if you would be so kind. It would really help us out. Indeed it would. So with that said, it is time for us to dive into the science and tech in National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets conversation today. We're going to kind of guide this episode through the same framework that we used for our first science episode in season one. So we're going to start with four science and tech topics that we're going to go into a little bit more of a deep dive on. Um, then we're going to go into our speed round where we go into a lot less detail, but across the board for each topic, you're going to get the movie context, you're going to get an explainer of the science or the tech behind it, and then we're going to answer the big question, was it portrayed in a legitimate way in National Treasure 2, yes or no? Um, and I'm very happy to report that the fan favorite National Treasure Lab from season one is back. We have chosen four of the topics that we'll be covering today to do some at-home experiments that we will share with you via video and photo on Twitter and Instagram. Just another reason for you to be following us on socials. Um, with that being said, M, I just want to make one more caveat or like reminder that we're of all the episodes that we do, I feel like we are most qualified to do these science ones. I mean, we both have PhDs in a scientific field, so I agree. So hopefully that'll give you a little bit of confidence in uh, what we're about to present to you. But more importantly, if you have questions about anything you hear today, definitely send us those questions and we would love to chat with you, go into more detail, explain things if we didn't explain them well enough, etc. So please get in contact with us about science and tech. All right, Em, are we ready to dive into topic number one? I am so ready. All right, well, this first topic is mine. I will be leading us through. It is the use of spectral imaging to examine the Booth Diary page. Now, for anyone who doesn't remember, cough, cough, Emily, um, this is relevant <laughs> because you might recall that despite their tenuous relationship, Ben needs to convince Abigail to let him examine Mitch Wilkinson's missing piece of the Booth Diary page using quote-unquote spectral imaging, and he convinces her by promising her the Boston tea tables and their little separation. So he wins, 
she lets him examine the page under spectral imaging. And we see the page sort of blown up, maximized sort of on a computer screen with each subsequent scan. You can kind of see scans happening. And those scans sort of improve the resolution or the contrast of what we see on that Booth Diary page. Now, eventually, of course, we do see residual ink from the reverse diary page on uh, the image. And it is the Playfair cipher that really started it all. Now, I do have to just jump in here really quickly, though, and say that if you listened to the premiere episode of season three of National Treasure Hunt, you know that we did a deep dive into the National Treasure 2 trailer, which actually portrayed a very different storyline. And under spectral imaging, we saw the seal of the president's secret book. Mm -hmm. via spectral imaging. Um, so those are sort of the two different ways this is relevant. One, the actual plot, and one, the plot that could have been. If only. <laughs> if only. Okay, so let's dive in here. First of all, spectral imaging. Is it a thing? Emily, do you know the answer to this question? I'm pretty sure it's a thing, yeah. It's totally a thing. All right. So what I want to do is explain what that thing is and a generic sort of how it works. And then I want to talk about the results that spectral imaging gives and compare that to the results that we see in the movie, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, so spectral imaging is a scientific technique that is used commonly in many fields, including, but not limited to, art conservation, astronomy, biology, remote sensing, and really a bunch of other fields. Um, I wanted to point out the art conservation specifically because it's a little similar to what we're doing in the movie, right? Right. Um, so in art conservation, spectral imaging is often used to identify what pigments like paints are actually made of. Okay. So That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really cool. We learned a little bit about this in my archaeology class at our science. You remember I took that senior year? I do. It was like the coolest class ever. Um, basically, as many people probably know, uh, different pigments can be traced back to different locations or different time periods based on like what they're made of and their chemical compositions. Um, so that's important for dating um, a painting, for example. But also, if you're going to restore it, you need to know what it's made of. True. So, um, so that's an example of what you can accomplish using spectral imaging. But the real question here, I think, is how it works, since we do want to dive into the technical details a little bit. The best way I, I can dive into this with everyone is think of a camera, your favorite like phone camera, a digital camera, you know, a fancy camera, whatever you want. Um, a camera, of course, takes photographs of objects and depicts them really the way that we see them, right? using the visible light spectrum, all the colors we recognize as Roy G. Biv and everything on that spec, like the visible light spectrum, right? Um, but as you might recall from high school science classes, the visible spectrum is only a specific subset of wavelengths of light that exist that we can see. Mm. Um, but there are many other wavelengths of light and sound. Mm -hmm. And some of those wavelengths are longer and some are shorter than the waves that we see in the visible light spectrum. We, we can't see them with the naked eye, but we know they're there for various reasons. One reason, which is you can measure them using different devices. And so um, I kind of want to give an example of this as well. I don't know if anyone is like me and enjoys ghost adventures on the travel channel. Um, but if you've ever watched- um, Ghost adventures is on the travel channel? Yeah. Okay, story Honestly, for another time. The travel channel is like mostly ghost shows these days. I kid you not. Um, ghost adventures, objectively the best one. But any ghost hunting show or any show that uses sort of night vision, right? Goggles, like that's letting you see um, it's using different wavelengths of light to let you see. These are not visi necessarily visible wavelengths of light. So using different types of filters and detectors, it is possible to quote unquote see, or at least understand and recognize different non-visible wavelengths. Now, 
Spectral imaging, let's get back to the topic at hand here, not just ghosts. Um, spectral imaging can be used to image wavelengths that are in the infrared part of the spectrum, the visible part of the spectrum, the ultraviolet part, or even the x-ray part of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And usually it's doing a combination of these types mm -hmm. of wavelengths all at once. Now, this is important because different chemical components of something like paint, right? As we're talking about art con uh, conservation, different, different chemical components can be identified using different wavelengths of light based on how they interact with it. Mm, okay. So you can think of different chemicals as having different fingerprints. Mm. And those fingerprints are evident using different wavelengths of light or how they interact, right, with different wavelengths of light. Um, so as a result, spectral imaging basically attributes chemical characteristics that are sampled using these different wavelengths to a particular location on a sample that you're interested in. So if you have a, again, I'll go back to the art example. If you have a little square of a painting and you have some blue paint, you have some red paint, you have some yellow paint, you know, the spectral imaging is going to be able to tell you that, oh, there's iron in the red paint and there's copper in the blue paint or whatever, right? And it's going to be able to show you exactly where those chemical components are located in your, in your painting. Mm -hmm. Now, does, am I, you look confused, Em, am I making sense in general? No, no, you're making sense. I'm just, pro I'm processing. It takes me a little bit because this isn't my area of expertise, but yes, I, I'm processing. I think you're making complete sense. Okay, good. I'm glad. Um, so basically what spectral imaging does then is it's a combination of like a photograph and the chemical analysis. So okay. think of, think from the science perspective from maybe, hey, from your neurons, if you have if you have a neuron, Emily, and you took a picture of it and then use something like spectral imaging to examine that picture of the neuron, it'll be able to say, okay, in this part of the neuron, you have this sort of chemical composition. And then at this part of the neuron, I don't know, are there metals, metal ions and neurons at all? If there were, you'd be able to say, okay, that metal, the metal ions are concentrated there and not over there. Mm -hmm. Okay or whatever, whatever's happening in a neuron. It's a bad example because it works much better with metals. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, as far as I know, neurons don't, don't contain metals. <laughs> I don't know. Ion channels are a thing in the body. Um, yeah, but not for like magnesium. <laughs> magnesium's a metal. I know. Oh, you're saying they don't contain magnesium. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know. I never took neuroscience. Whatever. So in National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets, this version where you basically have um, the picture and the chemical composition being collected simultaneously, this is called multispectral imaging specifically. And that's probably what they use in the movie hmm, because okay. we're kind of seeing an image, right? You need an image mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to... to in the movie because what we see on their computer screen. Um, but I will say this, the results of a spectral imaging experiment, a multi-spectral imaging experiment in real life do not look like what we see in the movie. Basically, you're not going to see a picture of your sample and a bunch of scans and every time it's just increasingly better resolution and contrast. Basically, what we see in the movie is a sophisticated Instagram filter. <laughs> okay. In reality, with multispectral imaging, you get a basic black and white image. And then usually computer software can be used to kind of color code those chemical compositions in the sample as arbitrary colors. So you can make the iron components show up red. You can make the copper components show up green or whatever. Um, so actually we, if, if we want, we can totally share like an image of what an actual multispectral imaging result could look like on our social media this week. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think this brings us to the big question, Emily. Yeah. Aubrey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for it. Tell me. The question is. Was the spectral imaging to view the Booth Diary page legit? 
My answer is going to be yes-ish. <laughs> okay. So it's definitely possible that spectral imaging could have been used to identify that ink remnants not visible to the naked eye were present on the page, right? Again, by identifying a different chemical composition, chemical traces in those locations where the ink was. However, the representation of that information, like I said, was not portrayed accurately with basically the writing just like showing up on a picture of the actual page. So yes-ish. Okay. Okay, yeah. I'll take that. Yes-ish. Some science. Just drop some science knowledge on you. Heck yes. I hope that explanation was not totally crazy, but it might have been. We'll see. Let us know. Anyway, let's move on to topic Number two, Emily, I believe this one belongs to you. This is using a drone to photograph the Statue of Liberty's torch. Now, do you want me to do the movie context for you to help you out? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> okay. Well, we know we have a Playfair cipher uh, from the Booth Diary page, and that cipher is revealed to mean Laboulet Lady. Now, of course, Ben knows that this means uh, the Statue of Liberty in Paris. So Ben and Riley go to Paris for all of five seconds in this movie. Uh, Riley uses effectively a, a drone with a camera to examine the height of the statue up close, right? Because they can't actually like climb it. They've already disturbed the peace enough, according to the French policeman. <laughs> so, um, he uses the drone to take a picture of this um, embossed text, I guess, on mm -hmm. the torch. Um, and this text reveals the Resolute Twins clue. Um, so that's the context. We also have here the reemergence of National Treasure Lab. Woo! So um, I took the liberty of helping to handle, I guess, this National Treasure Lab. I say that because I totally farmed it off on someone else who actually has a drone. Um, so basically, my boyfriend's brother, his name is Elliot. Shout out to Elliot. Um, Elliot lives in Texas and has a drone as a toy, like so many do. And I basically asked him if he could do us a solid and use that drone to like go up approximately to the height of the Parisian Statue of Liberty and take a photograph of something so we could see sort of what it looks like. Would Riley be able to use this technique IRL? And so um, I did have to do a little bit of math here. Uh, turns out that the, like, the elevation of the Parisian Statue of Liberty, not easy to come by. No, it's not. It's really not. Um, I did find like the height of the actual statue part, but then I couldn't tell the height of the base. Like I couldn't find that anywhere. And the base is like half the height. Right. Um, so my boyfriend, Brian, who uses Coral Draw on his laptop for lab things, science, <laughs> um, we actually imported a picture of the Parisian Statue of Liberty into Coral Draw and then used basically the feature that can give you the dimensions of aspects to oh. get a ratio between the size of the actual statue and the base and then calculate the total height. And I'm proud to report that the approximate height of the full base and statue is about 23 meters or 75 feet. So honestly, not that high. Not high at all, especially compared to the one in the United States. Totally. We totally gypped Paris and France as a country when we gave them this iteration of the statue. Um, but I'm happy to report that as you will see um, this week on our social media, Twitter and Instagram, the short answer is yes. You can totally take a drone up 75 feet and take a picture of something and like read it, examine it. It's not perfect resolution. Few things are. I mean, that's just the quality of the camera. But uh, yeah, that's my National Treasure Lab report. Thank you so much for that lab report, Aubrey. Beautifully done, as usual. I am going to take a moment and talk about the science technology Tech. behind drones. Um, and so what I'm going to do is give you a brief layout of what a drone contains, how they work, and then 
the different kinds of drones that exist. So drones obviously need some form of connectivity. So basically a drone has to be wireless, right? You're not shooting something up in the air that has a wire attached to it. So it can like, be controlled. It's like a kite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A drone is just a kite without a string. Hey! Uh, so you can either control the drone in real time with Bluetooth or something, or you can pre-program specific GPS coordinates into the drone. And then the main aspect of the drone is the rotors. So there's like a propeller, which is known as a rotor. Think of it as like a fan. And that's attached to a motor. <laughs> rotors and motors. <laughs> so one of the big things about uh, drones is obviously their ability to go vertically. Uh, otherwise, you'd just be using like mechanical car. Um, so the vertical movement is very important. In order to reduce the vertical motion, it gets a little sciency. So okay. we have the blades or the, the propeller, the rotor part that's spinning. As it spins, it pushes air down. But at the same time, air is also pushing up on the blades. I don't know, but it's happening. Hashtag physics physics which i didn't do well in so <laughs> now part of what drones need to do when especially when they're taking pictures is hover in order to hover the downward thrust of the drone has to equal the gravitational pull that's working against it makes sense and in order to do this think of it if there are four rotors two of the rotors have to spin clockwise and two of the rotors have to spin counterclockwise in order to produce this kind of hovering motion. Okay. In order to climb, so if, as Riley was taking the drone up to reach the Statue of Liberty, you have to increase the speed of the rotors so that the upward force is greater than the force of gravity. And then in order to bring the drone back down once it's taken the picture, in order to descend, you have to decrease the speed of the rotors so that the upward force is less than that of gravity. All right. Now, ultimately, though you're using, and you can see this in the movie, kind of a joystick-type control to control the drone, there's fundamentally a computer that's, like, in the drone that's making more complex adjustments to each individual rotor. So each movement that involves turning or any other kind of horizontal movement to get from one place to another requires that you slightly adjust each individual rotor differently to manage a handful of physics-related concepts and forces, such as angular momentum, which I don't really understand, and torque. <laughs> so basically, imagine having to use four different controllers to adjust all of these forces individually in four rotors. And imagine how difficult that would be. Extremely. Right? So that's why when you see Riley just using one little thing, it's because there's a computer within the drone that's taking all of this information and making these very complex physics-related adjustments. That tracks. Okay, okay. Now, drones can be used for a variety of things, depending on what type they are. We have some close-range drones, which can go about 30 miles and are typically for hobbyists. So these are probably similar to what Riley was using and similar to what Elliot uh, probably also has. Short-range drones can go up to about 90 miles, and these tend to be used for information gathering and, yes, you guessed it, espionage. Oh. Mid-range drones then can go upwards of 400 miles, so we're really taking a leap here. They're used for intelligence gathering, they can be used for scientific studies, and also for meteorological research. And then you have endurance drones, which are the big boys, and they can go beyond the 400 mile range. So 
real world examples of drone usage are for learning about science in some really extreme climates. So think about the Antarctic or something like that. We can use a drone to get some information about things that people might not be able to readily uh, gather because they can't go into these climates comfortably. Uh, drones can assist in searching for survivors for rescue missions. And they also give law enforcement and military personnel kind of eyes in the sky. That makes sense. The other thing that I, don't, I feel like we don't recognize as much because I feel like drones are a fairly common part of daily life now. I mean, you, you, they're not like a foreign concept. You might see or hear one. Your friend might have one. You might have one, right? So I think we take Riley's use of the drone a little bit for granted because mm-hmm. we're looking or watching the movie through the lens of today but recall that this movie came out in 2007 when um i think inarguably drones were probably you were less likely to have one for funsies so i think for sure so i think this really supports the whole riley is a techie nerd argument oh yeah and i think so I mean, you've kind of already answered this question, but to bounce off of what you're saying, the answer to this question of whether or not this is legit is obviously yes, because you demonstrated that in the National um, Treasure Hunt Lab that you did. But I've also done some digging. Uh, I've rewatched the scene a series of times, and I can confirm that Riley was definitely using a multi-rotor drone so he had at least two rotors on it that looked exactly like a small helicopter carrying a small camera, which is typically what uh, uh, before, like today, before modern times, that's kind of what drones used to be like, more so than like the weird, like flat kind of thing. Yeah, that- flat things with four legs. <laughs> yeah. Now, these drones can spend like 20 to 30 minutes in the air. So, I mean, based on the fact that they took five minutes in the movie to go to Paris, it seems like they probably were able to get that uh, get, to get that picture of the Statue of Liberty's torch uh, within that time frame. And, you know, I even did some additional math just to say, what would happen if Riley were going to use his drone to look at the American Statue of Liberty? Oh, like way taller. Way taller, right? So, Drones are actually allowed to fly up to 400 feet in the air. Uh, so, at, but they're limited to that so as not to interfere with like airplanes and, and such. Fair. Um, and the ground to the actual top of the torch of the Statue of Liberty in the United States is 305 feet and one inch. Meaning that even if they were doing this in the United States, Riley would have been able to use this kind of small multi-rotor drone to look at the torch Mm. on the Statue of Liberty. So what you're telling me is I really wish that Mitch Wilkinson had his own little drone. So when he went to the wrong Statue of Liberty, the one in New York, he could have gone up and seen that he was being dumb and was wrong. That's definitely the conclusion to draw. Okay, so we're um, we're sort of two for two, maybe one and a half for two, since I gave yes-ish for mine. Let's move on to number four. Now, this one, I'm actually really excited to hear your assessment of, Emily, because this is probably one of the factors of National Treasure 2 that is not only very techy, but it's often criticized as being one of the less believable parts of this movie. So I want you to, I'm really excited to hear whether or not you agree. This is the resolution of the red light traffic camera in London. So our context here, we're in our London car chase scene that Emily loves so very much. And we're nearing the end. Ben realizes that in order to get Mitch's crew like off his tail and ideally not get into a massive car crash, he basically needs to hand over the plank that they found in the Queen's study at Buckingham Palace because Mitch knows he has the plank. So to capture a photo of the plank, because no one has a working cell phone camera, I guess, Ben basically runs a red light while holding the plank up to his face. So basically the traffic camera captures a photo of the car running a red light 
which includes the plank through the windshield. And of course, then Riley hacks into the police database to retrieve the photograph. Emily, it is all yours and I am all ears. Okay, so what I learned in doing this research is that there are two types of traffic cameras. There are red light cameras and there are traffic cameras. These things are used for different purposes and I'll get into that in a little bit. Oh man, okay. So the red light cameras are used to photograph when people are driving through a red light, right? That it kind of makes sense. We knew that already. Cameras are directly connected to the traffic light signal and to sensors, which can monitor the flow of traffic before the line that you need to stop at for the traffic light. So if you go over the sensor line, when the light is registered as being red, the camera will take a picture. Okay. And typically, I actually found that drivers have like a grace period of up to half a second for after the light switches to red. So like if they're like partway through the intersection or something like that, like they have a little bit of a grace period to, you know, it's half a second. It's not much, but still. The more you know. Yeah. So go ahead and use that in your daily life. Um, for the picture, <laughs> for the picture aspect of things, there are usually two images. One image is of the vehicle when it reaches the line it's supposed to stop at, and then one is of the vehicle directly in the intersection itself. Okay, like proving that you went through it. Right, and I can say that I have done this before. And have received a letter from the police department or the traffic control people. And what they do is they send you these images in the mail to actually demonstrate that they've caught your car going through a red light. (laughs) Gotcha moment in real life. Yes. Now, interestingly, and this is where things start to take a turn for the not so great in terms of whether or not this could actually have happened the majority of the setups that i found show that the pictures are being taken from behind the car interesting and think about it this makes sense because you fundamentally need to get the license plate in the picture for citation purposes otherwise they're not going to know who to send it to unless they see the license plate Okay, is New Jersey the only state that requires you to have both a front and back license plate? Yes. I don't know (laughs) if it's the only state, but it's not a thing in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. So this means that it does look like some might be set up on the traffic light in front of the car rather than like the traffic light on the adjacent street. Mm. Uh, But I couldn't really find like pictures that had been taken from red light cameras in that direction so it's a little unclear so i looked up uh basically what the resolution of these red light cameras are i interestingly could only find what they are in china um but the resolution is seven megapixels which trust me is is pretty good some iphone cameras have like seven megapixel resolution on their photos so it's good and when you think about it it has to be pretty good because you have to be able to read the license plate right so this kind of goes along with if you can read a license plate from a fair distance through a red light traffic camera you would likely have been able to when you capture the image to read what the hieroglyphics or the omic writing was on the wooden plank like likely this would have been the case but like i said We're not sure if these red light cameras are in front of the cars or not. So then I thought, okay, well, let's go to the source. And the source in this case is the United Kingdom, London to be specific. Please. So traffic cameras were first used in the UK in the 1990s. And there are 225 of them located in London as of 2005. Okay. Now, traffic cameras in the UK have pictures that are actually publicly available and are very low resolution. 
Mm. to the point where people or vehicles cannot be easily identified. Now, these traffic cameras are generally used to show traffic patterns and aren't actually used to deliver citations. Hence mm -hmm. why you can have low resolution and it can be publicly available, right? You don't need to hack into a police system in order to understand the traffic patterns that are occurring. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if they're publicly available, it makes sense that you would want to have people in vehicles kind of not super identifiable. Can I interject really quickly for a second? I am blown away by the good resolution that can be achieved using these cameras yeah like blown away this to me is one of because now i know where you're going to go with the ultimate question which i'll let you answer in a second but what i feel like this is a major revelation everyone in the world when they criticize this scene says oh there's no way you'd have resolution good enough they don't necessarily use that word basically they would say you would not be able to see the plank like depict the the plank in that camera image. I'm mind blown. I'm mind blown. Thank so, you, people. I have mind blown Aubrey. Okay, so Emily, how would you answer the question? Is it legit or not? Unfortunately, I have to say probably not. Uh, but not because is, of the resolution? Not because of the resolution. So, well, partially because of the resolution. So it seems like red light cameras definitely have the resolution needed to see the plank and to be able to make out the carvings on it. But it also seems like the red light cameras tend to take pictures from behind the vehicle, not in front of the vehicle. The traffic cameras used in the UK definitely would take a picture from the front of the vehicle and could have been what was used in the film, given especially that they were in London. Uh, and that the picture was taken from the front. But the resolution of those cameras definitely would not have been good enough to actually read the plank. Gotcha. So if they used a red light camera and for some reason it was oriented from the front, it would have worked. Yes, that is my opinion. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. This is also reminding me, do you remember in Fennig's class? in freshman year of college when we were, he was teaching the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And he used the concept of a traffic intersection to explain the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Do you remember this? Zero recollection of that. Oh, see, this is very clear in my mind. The whole thing where if, if a car is going through the intersection, you could either make the, you could either know the position of the car really clearly. So it's a really well-resolved image, but then you lose all information about its momentum because you don't see like the blur of the car. Or you can know the momentum. So you have the blur of the car based on the distance. You can calculate the momentum, but you don't know its exact position because mm -hmm. it's blurry. So um, basically what you're telling me and what Dr. Fenning is telling me is we, uh, we can know the position of the car really dang well. Yep. Wow. Okay. Um, I don't know if I'm, how I'm going to be able to get through this next one, M, because I'm still really processing this. Well, you better, Aubrey, because it's a big question. Does water make parts of rocks darker? <laughs> I'm laughing. And nobody knows the answer to this. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm laughing because this is one of my National Treasure Labs as well, but we'll get there. Okay. 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 No one needs this reminder, not even Emily, but just for the sake of completeness, as we know, Ben, Abigail, Riley, Ben's parents, and Mitch are all climbing the rocks next to the lake that's purportedly near Mount Rushmore because they are looking for islands of stone and a sea of grass. Now, per the Buckingham Palace plank, they are looking for a noble bird, and per Mitch's letter from Queen Victoria, the, quote, entrance shall only be revealed under a cloudless rain, end quote. So, of course, the group begins sprinkling water on the rocks, noticing that the water makes the rocks darker, and eventually from enough water sprinkling, they find a carving of an eagle surrounding a crevice in the rocks, and this is going to allow them entrance to Cibola. So, uh, before I jump into the science here, which really brought me back to some elementary school, like geology, that I realized I forgot but really enjoyed, 
I did National Treasure Lab again, Em. Um, Gotta do it. I'm giggling because this resulted in me really just kind of going out into my neighborhood with a bottle of water, finding a patch of rocks, um, which was happened to be like on a very busy street. So like hashtag no shame. Um, and dumping the bottle of water all over the rocks while on video and like all of the public could watch me. So it was a joy to behold for all involved, I'm sure. Um, but basically, as I think many people know, you know, you go to the to the beach, you go to a lake, you pick up a pretty rock, right? It's all wet. It's pretty and shiny. You put it in your pocket. You take it home. You take it out. And it's like, oh, this is dull and boring and ugly because mm-hmm. water makes rocks appear different. So, yes, water can make rocks appear darker. Um, and what I found in my own personal experiment, my National Treasure Lab, was that different parts of rocks, so if there were like inclusions of like tiny minerals or like little tiny rocks within the larger rock, you could really get different levels of darkening, if you will. <laughs> so, so you really could get more contrast. This, suffice it to say, you could get more contrast in some rocks when they were wet than when they are dry, which really does lend a little bit more credibility to the whole, we can see the eagle when it's wet, but not when it's dry thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why does this happen? Um, this is going to be uh, some just basic geology in the beginning, and then we're going to get into some more specifics uh, when it comes to Mount Rushmore. So as you may know, rocks get their color from the minerals that comprise them. Every mineral has its own unique chemical composition, and that, of course, gives the mineral, and thus the rock as a whole, its color. It's pretty much how all things get their colors, right? The, yeah. the way different chemicals interact with light. It's kind of going back to the spectral imaging a little bit. Nice continuity yeah. there. <laughs> so different wavelengths of light are basically absorbed or reflected by these, you know, everything around us, but including rocks, the wavelength reflected back to the viewer's eye is the color of the rock, right? So if the if the rock looks red, it's because the rock reflected red back into your eyeball, right, Em? Yes. So that being Neuroscience. said- Neuroscience. <laughs> there, there you go, perception <laughs> of color, I guess. Um, rocks. <laughs> can be and often are made up of multiple minerals um, and minerals combined together or mixed with impurities. So think of those inclusions that I mentioned just when I was talking about the National Treasure Lab. Um, Those minerals combined together will likely appear as a different color than just the single pure mineral on its own. And Mm. so, of course, this depends a little bit on scale. So if you have like a really homogenous um, small scale mixture, it's going to look like a, a whole new color on its own. Whereas if you have macro scale inclusions, a heterogeneous mixture, you're going to see the different colors broken out, right? Mm-hmm. As individual colors. Now, the important part here, especially when it gets to the water, is that rocks are porous at like a microscopic level. And so when exposed to water, water is going to fill those pores. Now, this often makes a rock appear temporarily darker when wet. Now, this is important. Different rock compositions have different porosities. Okay. So that's, you know, different like quantities of pores in a way, like a different distribution of pores, different depth of pores, different sizes of pores. And so based on those differences and the way the light interacts with the water in those pores, mm-hmm. some rocks will look like they darken more than others. Oh. Okay. Now, over time, the color of a rock can change based on different environmental factors like chemical exposure. So think pollution like ozone and stuff mm-hmm. or UV radiation um, from the atmosphere. Um, and rocks are also weathered over time by exposure to the elements. So this makes some rocks smooth, like you know, when rocks are tossed around an ocean surf for a really long time and they get real smooth. Um, But this can also carve massive canyons out of larger rocks that are facing constant repetitive inundation over Mm -hmm. hundreds, thousands of years. Think the Grand Canyon, for instance. Now, this is physical weathering. 
whereas the changes based on chemical exposures or radiation, those are, those are chemical weathering, if you will. I wanted to kind of ask, since we know now that different rocks can get more or less dark when they get wet, how does this apply to the rocks at and around Mount Rushmore specifically to answer our big question? So as we know, the movie scene takes place at Sylvan Lake. We've talked about mm. this before. This is in Custer State Park. It is not at Mount Rushmore. It is a few miles away, but that is where it is filmed um, on the lake's famous granite boulders. So the rock is granite. Now, granite, uh, you might be familiar with it, like from your kitchen, right? Kitchen countertops, for example. Um, yes. But granite is a light colored igneous rock that's formed from the crystallization of like magma, so like like underground lava. Beneath like volcanoes, the earth. though. Yeah, volcano stuff beneath the Earth's surface. Um, and if you're into rocks, granite is mainly composed of quartz and feldspar with minor amounts of... Um, minor amounts of other minerals and specifically at Custer State Park and Sylvan Lake these boulders are rounded due to thousands of years of that weathering that we talked about so interestingly um I, I didn't have any granite at my disposal when I was doing my national treasure lab <laughs> but I did like in this pile of rocks there were a bunch of rocks that had granite-like physical properties if you will so you could tell it was a different types of rocks, different types of minerals put together in a semi-homogenous way. And interestingly enough, these rocks were some of the ones that really had the biggest differing level of color contrast when wet, right? Because some of the rock components, you know, I guess based on their porosities, didn't look as different, right? We, mm -hmm. If there were like whitish inclusions, they didn't turn dark gray. Whereas if there were dark gray inclusions, they definitely turned closer to black. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's the best way I can really describe this. So in the end, the big question here, is this legit? This, this water makes the rocks turn darker to find the eagle on the boulders. Well, of course, there's no eagle on the boulders, but that's not what we're <laughs> testing here. We know that that's a piece of the plot. That is not what we're testing. So just based on the science of rocks, sure, this could have happened if, if, an Olmec tribe or any Native American tribe had, had carved something into these rocks that they wanted you to find in the rain or when you dumped water on it, yeah, this could have happened. The implication here is that when the Olmec in the movie carved the granite rock to form the eagle, the surface and the interior rock had in some ways slightly different compositions based on the, the chemical composition, the porosity, et cetera. And so when wet, the water gave the rock differing degrees of perceived darkness, right? So to me, the real question is, you know, would the chemical compositions look close enough to the same when dry to effectively hide the eagle without the water? That's the only question I have here. Oh, Aubrey, this is fascinating. I have to say, I've learned a lot from this little, for something that I was just like, rocks change color when they're wet. Sure. I've learned a lot. It's the ultimate like five-year-old question, right? Why? 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 Like, why does all this happen? So um, I'm glad you learned something. I did too. It was a lot of fun dumping water on rocks. Highly recommend. Um, and when we eventually make our way to South Dakota, we will obviously, obviously Dump have to read recreate this scene um yes. but that brings us finally to our speed round now as you may know our speed round in hunt for hypotheses episodes is basically just like little tidbits that we found like less interesting so we didn't want to spend as much time digging into so they're basically the speed round because we were less interested in them i'm not really sure what that says but hopefully you'll find it interesting <laughs> I certainly found some of them interesting when I was doing the research on them, actually. I'm going to be struggling to get them succinct, I think. Oh God. Well, I think that only means that, Emily, you need to bring out your auctioneer voice. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, well, you have to start this part. Um... <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Emily is going to start us off with her auctioneer voice when it comes to the science, but I will introduce the first topic of our speed round. This is fireworks marking the end of the Civil War and at the end of the movie, 
over Mount Rushmore. So we get two appearances of fireworks here in National Treasure 2. At the very beginning of the movie, fireworks are shooting off in the distance to celebrate the end of the Civil War. And of course, at the very end, they're shooting off over Mount Rushmore to celebrate the finding of Cibola. We got some nice circular plot devices there. Now, Emily, we did talk about the history of fireworks a little bit in one of our past history episodes, but let's get to the science. Ready and go. So we're going to try for a speed round style explanation of fireworks here. In order to have a firework, you need one, an oxidizing agent, two, a fuel, three, metal compounds for color, and four, a binder. Not a binder full of papers, but something to bind it all together. So we got metal salts for colors. We have a binder that holds the oxidizing agent, the fuel, and all of the colorants together. This is housed in a cardboard aerial shell, which also contains black powder mixture at the bottom yes that same black powder that we talked about in our first episode on science in national treasure one now the black powder with a tube or a mortar is used as a lifting charge to send the firework into the air high into the air so it doesn't damage things there's a secondary timing fuse which then ignites the black powder mixture at the bottom causing a chemical reaction of explosion and expansion that releases the ignited effects pellets. Fundamentally, how we get color in fireworks. We got some reds, we got some oranges, we got some blues, some yellows, some purples. How does this happen? Science. So we get color from the metal absorbing energy from the heat released by the gunpowder reactions. And this absorbing of energy causes light emission from these different chemicals. So how do we get red? Strontium or lithium salts, orange and yellow, calcium chloride and sodium. Green, barium compounds. Blue, which is the hardest to make using copper chloride. And then purple is a mixture of strontium and copper chloride. Your basic color mashing together that you did in first grade where blue and red makes purple. Is this legit? Yes, as we talked about, fireworks were a typical part of American life by the Revolutionary War. So they definitely would have been round for the Civil War. And they probably would have been able to have these colors because not only did they have the black gunpowder in order to go boom, but they also had these different uh, metal absorbing energy balls that they could use for color, bam. I have no idea how I'm going to follow that up at the end of this. Okay, you're on, the, you're on the second speed round as well, Emily. This is the cloning of Patrick's flip phone. The only, the biggest thing in these franchise movies that really date the movies is the phone that they use. So of course, while Ben and Riley are in London, Patrick is attacked in his own home by Mitch's awful cronies. The cronies clone Patrick's phone in order to receive all phone calls and text messages he receives mostly from Ben. Emily, take it away. So in order to clone a phone, you need to make a copy of the SIM card using a SIM card reader to read the phone's unique cryptographic key. You then have to transfer that information to another phone. Cloning a phone sounds pretty simple. I'm sure the process is a lot more difficult. Now, the problem, as it was stated on the websites that I looked at, is that you need physical access to the phone you want to clone. This was not a problem for Mitch and his men, as you just mentioned. They found Patrick in his home, knocked him out, cloned his phone. Phone cloning basically allows you to intercept incoming texts and send outgoing texts as if your phone were the original one. Intercepting phone calls, however, can only happen if you're near the same broadcast tower of the original phone. So is this legit? Kind of. Honestly, it would depend on Patrick's original phone having been near the same broadcast tower as the phone Mitch used as a clone had no idea any of that. Okay, I learned something here too. Emily, you have number three. We got a centuries-old wooden plank being thrown in water. Oh my gosh, that seems like a terrible idea. But basically, to get rid of Mitch's crew during the car chase in London, Ben tosses the plank into the Thames River. Rude. One of Mitch's cronies then dives into the river to retrieve the plank because this is not the Hudson call back to National Treasure 1. And of course, the plank is in perfectly good shape. Emily, I believe you did a test, a National Treasure Lab, to uh, test this out. 
I did. And you will see this National Treasure Lab represented on our Instagram and Twitter feeds, along with some videos and pictures. What I did is I took some wood. I put some wood in the oven. To replicate it being like the planks being old and dried out. Yes, but I did it for a short period of time because I was afraid that the wood was going to catch on fire. I mean, you almost lit your entire apartment building on fire in season one to try to light some cobwebs on fire. Right, but I'm moving out of this apartment. Liability, understood. (laughs) Basically, what happened is the wood survived for about 24 hours in water without any visible damage. When I took it out and bent it, it seemed fine. Well, I couldn't really bend it because it's wood. Um and all of that so what's the science behind this wood is less dense than water so wood tends to float obviously the plank was floating when mitch's cronies went into the water to find it because they didn't need to go scuba diving interestingly soaking wood in water for long periods of time fundamentally lowers the stiffness and the strength of the wood When dry wood is met with water, the cell walls of the wood fill with water, causing them to expand and soften. The hydrogen bonds between the cell walls can break, and hydrogen bonds form with water instead. Stronger hydrogen bonds end up being formed between the cellulose, or the cell wall areas, and the water, then between the cellulose and the cellulose itself. Since water is small and can get in between cells, this especially happens. Ultimately, this softens the connections between the cell walls, so they are no longer as strongly bonded to one another, which decreases the stiffness of the wood. I will say I have noticed a decrease in the stiffness of my wood. I haven't used scientific measurements, but it does seem slightly more pliable. Also, the cells get pushed apart when the water comes in, So there are fewer of them per unit area, meaning that for an applied stress, the load per cell is actually greater. This fundamentally decreases the strength of the wood. Now, I did not take my wood and do anything to test the strength of it because I like the wood and it's pretty. But is this legit? Yes. With all of the above said, even with all of the above said, the old wooden plank didn't really spend that much time in the water. And it also wasn't completely submerged. It floated because science. So none of these processes would have really had time to take effect. Also, they didn't try measuring the strength or stiffness of the wood, but it would likely have been minimally affected given that once again, it spent very small amount of time in the water itself. Science bone. I don't know how I'm gonna do these last two. I cannot compare to your enthusiasm. We'll try. Okay. Okay. Speed round number four, we have scuba diving in the Potomac River. Now, this to me seems like the dumbest one for us to examine, and it's going to give us one of the most surprising results. Of course, Ben needs to talk to the president alone to learn where the secret book is kept, and the only way he can figure out to do this is to crash the president's birthday party at Mount Vernon by scuba diving from a speedboat piloted by his dad in the Potomac River and swimming to the shores behind Mount Vernon, which, as we learned during our trip to Mount Vernon, Emily, was actually filmed there. And all of this, you know, you can boat in the Potomac River, and I, I guess you could dive in with a scuba, some scuba gear. But is that smart? Is this borne out by science? I mean, of course, you can physically swim in a body of water. It is water. And I guess feel free to use whatever snorkel or scuba equipment you would like, although do be warned that swimming in many parts of the Potomac River is illegal. But one of the reasons it is illegal is because parts of the Potomac, especially between Great Falls in Maryland and Washington, D.C., have super strong underwater currents, even in areas where the surface looks calm. In fact, tens of people in the past handful of years have either nearly drowned or drowned in the Potomac River trying to swim. So is this legit? Surprisingly, eh? I mean, Ben would have had to be either a really strong swimmer or have been dropped off literally right next to the dock, which would have defeated the purpose of him swimming in the first place. That was that was pretty enthusiastic, Aubrey. What's 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 our last speed round here? See if we can round it out nicely with that enthusiasm. I know you're going to have to bring it hard, but you got this. I mean, happily, this is a combo of me and you. This is honestly one of the less exciting ones as well. This is gold being underwater in Cibola. Now recall that Cibola is discovered beneath the rocks in the Black Hills. Its location is adjacent to a lake and 
combined with the architecture that leads to and protects it, that means that for hundreds of years, Cibola has been submerged underwater. Remember, when the tunnel doors are closed, the room fills with water, hence the reason why Mitch drowns at the end. So Emily, you had some fun. You doused some gold in some water. Tell us about your National Treasure Lab. Yeah, I put a cute little gold angel pin in some water. Nothing happened to it. It's, it's fine. Shocker. This is because gold is a noble metal, one of a handful of metals with superb resistance to oxidation and corrosion. So water really doesn't affect it at all. And this is especially the case since Sylvan Lake in South Dakota isn't saltwater and it's pretty calm. In other words, it's not thrashing around a bunch of rocks and stuff that could damage you know, our gold underwater at Cibola. There's really not even any mineral content that you would expect to build up on the surface of the gold or anything that you would expect to smash into the gold to damage it. Now, this relates back to my scream at the beginning of the episode, that gold-colored coin, while being very dense and very heavy and gold-colored, probably is not gold because, as I mentioned, it is extremely corroded and you can barely see you know, any of the depictions on it because of that corrosion. So is it legit that you would find Cibola, which was effectively underwater for hundreds of years and being tip-top shaped, shiny and gold, not just because of CGI? The answer is yes. Cibola should look just as smooth and shiny as they do in fact find it, thanks to the periodic table. That's the ultimate science bomb. Knowledge drop. Whew. Emily, I think we did it. I think we turned an effectively scienceless National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets into a science and technology-filled episode that hopefully all of us learned something from. I know I certainly did. And if you did as well, please feel free to post about it. Talk to us about it on social media. You can find us at NT Hunt Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Please like, subscribe, rate, review, do everything that you can there. You can find us to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Good Pods. We are here available both for you to listen to and to commune with technologically as we respond via the platforms of Twitter and Instagram. Just be glad we didn't make Emily explain the technology behind Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Aubrey, what's our next episode about? All right, y'all. We hope you really enjoyed this episode today. And we hope you will come back in two weeks' time for our next one, our mid-season episode already. That will be a very fun deep dive into movie cliches evident in National Treasure. So hey, until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure. Hunt. <laughs> Thank you.